Opinions expressed on Mountain Talk do not necessarily reflect those of WMMT, Apple Shop Incorporated, or the station's funders. Welcome to Mountain Talk Monday. I'm your host, Kelly Haywood. In 2015, opioids, including heroin and prescription drugs like oxycodone and hydrocodone, killed more than 33,000 people, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Opioids are now claiming the lives of 91 Americans every day. Today, I'm in the studio with Justin Allen and Laura Kruger, who just released their documentary film, Journey to Recovery, on KT. Kentucky Educational Television. Welcome. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks for yes. having us. Glad to be here. I want to begin by talking about the film's title, Journey to Recovery. When I watched the film, it for me brought up questions as much as it did answers. But I did notice you had a very strong intention with this film to focus on what is recovery and the different ways that that looks for people. Could you tell me why that topic? It's a huge issue. There's so many different facets to it. You know, there's prevention, there's law enforcement, and treatment are the big ones. But, you know, there's a lot of different aspects to it. There's the legislation and policy and all these things. But at the end of the day, I think we were struck by the fact that people are dying every day. So, I mean, while prevention is important, job number one is to stop people from dying and to save lives. And we felt like Focusing on treatment was a was just a really good place to start, and and also because there's so many many myths and misconceptions about treatment. When you hear treatment, people have one thing in their mind, but there's a, now there are a lot of different treatments, and we felt like people didn't really know what they were necessarily. So we it was very much a desire to present some information that people could use and make decisions with. Yeah, I think that uh, you know the thing we saw, uh, like Laura was saying, is is the the best thing that we could do as an organization was to really focus on one thing. There's only so much you can do in an hour anyway, so to focus on the different treatment options that are available in the state and then how people get from a place of addiction to treatment and then on to recovery, which is a much longer term thing than just a, a short-term treatment. So getting to recovery was, was definitely the, what we wanted to go through and, and see what people what people's lives look like when they're in a recovery setting. There's basically two types of recovery programs, the abstinence only, which is 12-step programs, and some are faith-based, but there's a variety of them. And then you have your medical programs where you're supplemented with prescriptions like Suboxone or Methadone and coupled usually with some therapy, or ideally, I should say, because I know in talking with a lot of addicts from various programs, one of the things that they feel very strongly about is that both methadone and suboxone was not introduced properly into eastern Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And our, our listenership is, is mostly here in eastern Kentucky, and I know the problem seems to be heavily set in our area. And that, that was one of the biggest concerns that they said if I could address one thing, it would be that 
those drugs were not introduced properly into the community. When talking with the folks that you interviewed and, and doing research for your documentary, did you find that there was a balance of the two approaches or did people seem to favor one over the other? And what about the success? I think uh, most what we saw depends on where you're at and when you're where you ask those questions, what answer you get. Uh, if you go to a place like the Prescription Drug Abuse and Heroin Summit in Atlanta, where they have all these national experts on addiction come in, the big push is toward medically assisted treatment, whether that's Suboxone mainly or some other form of buprenorphine. Methadone less so. Methadone's been around for decades, and it's been a thing that's that's been used for opioid use disorder for for a long time. Buprenorphine is definitely something that has been pushed at that level. But you come to to Eastern Kentucky or Southern Kentucky or even Western Kentucky, and there's there's still a stigma surrounding buprenorphine style treatments. But I think the the one thing that that we definitely saw more than anything else is that everybody that knows anything about treating opioid use disorder says that it's very difficult and an abstinence program may work for a lot of people and it may not work for other people and the medicines basically cannot be used by themselves. There's no magic bullet that Suboxone is not going to cure you of anything without all those other, other supports that we talked about. Counseling, psychosocial treatments, community-based supports like housing and child care and, and all these other things that go in into the treatment are what really makes the difference long term. It's not just the medicine alone can't do it. It's it's all those other things that go along with it, I think, is, is the thing that we saw more than any, anything else, that it has to be used in conjunction with all those other things. And I think there's been an evolution. I mean, we did a show six years ago called Probing Prescription Drug Abuse, and I remember as a producer just kind of wading into that territory and not realizing that there was so many really strong, passionate feelings about this issue, and particularly about Suboxone and in Eastern Kentucky. And when I talked to people who were in treatment and whatnot, people in recovery were saying that they thought Suboxone was terrible. And then you talked to, you know, so many people sort of in on the ground saying how detrimental they thought Suboxone was because it was just sort of being sold on the streets and it was just, there was so much happening outside of a clinical setting. And then you talk to the experts and they're like, well, this is really great. And, and this is the the research shows how successful this was. So I was just struck by the disconnect. And so I think what I feel like, you know, especially in, in Eastern Kentucky, I think that the the stigma and some of the, the feelings that people have about it, they've come by honestly because they've seen, they've seen it firsthand. And they, you know, when you see it firsthand, that that's going to shape your impression. And I think, you know, for us kind of stepping back and, and realizing that time has moved on and there's more research and there's more understanding about how to use it successfully. And one of the things that we've heard too, is that a lot of times when people are using Suboxone, you know, getting it on the street, but they're trying to treat themselves, if it was more readily available and people could get it in a clinical setting in the right way that maybe they would but those things aren't available and and also nobody wants to like be seen going to the suboxone clinic necessarily but if you could get it in your primary care setting from your regular doctor and nobody was any the wiser that you were just sitting in the waiting room like anybody else maybe more people would use it and would use it properly and under a doctor's supervision so i think that there's a lot more known about it now and i think that that will continue to grow there is research out there about effectiveness. I think there's competing statistics sometimes, and you know people have different set up their studies in different ways. And I and I think at the end of the day, statistics aren't really 
necessarily going to sell the different treatments to people. What we tried to show in our documentary was these things have all worked for somebody. And if you're out there watching this documentary, you might see yourself in the person that went to the faith-based clinic and realize, oh, I'm kind of like them. That might work for me. Or they might go to the methadone clinic and realize, well, that, that will work for me because I feel like I kind of can relate to that person. So we kind of wanted to do that to say, we're not going to make a judgment necessarily here about one or the other. We just want to tell you what the experts are saying and show you what these look like in everyday life and let other people make their own decisions about that. That's kind of our point of view. I definitely believe that that's one of the most successful parts of the film, that it's laid out very even-handedly, and it's explained (laughs) so very well. Anyone can watch it, I feel, and come away with a better understanding of why someone becomes addicted, that it's not just a bad habit, that it becomes more than that, and what the options offer. And I really appreciated the segment on medical treatment because it it explained it from not only the patient's perspective, but also from the doctor's perspective, just how controlled it should be when it's done properly. Speaking to people who have tried all of the different and various treatments and have had successes with both. The most important thing that they've told me is that they have consistency and that they have someone to talk to as well. Mm -hmm. But now we hear of Suboxone and Methadone both being sold on the street and abused just as the other prescriptions have been. Now it's instead of being seen as a possible solution to the problem is being seen as part of the problem mm-hmm. when that again is abuse just like if you have a surgery and it's a major surgery you hope you come home with some way to tolerate your pain mm-hmm. you know and used properly in most cases you're going to be okay same way with any kind of treatment for a medical condition and that's one thing that I think the film does superbly and a a huge misunderstanding that we have in the community about treatments and that it's not as simple as, okay, make the decision to stop. Right. Mm -hmm. That there's got to be a lot in place. How accessible do you feel that resources are to people who need them? I definitely think just in the past year that we've been looking at all these different types of treatment options, everyone has told us that there's a lack uh, of enough beds to go to, enough facilities to go to, and buprenorphine or suboxone specifically has a limit, this is in the documentary as well, there's a limit on how many people a single doctor can can prescribe that to. I think uh, Dr. Lena Wynn for Baltimore, Health, the health commissioner in Baltimore said, we don't have that limit on any other drug in, a, in, in our country. Why do we have that restriction on this one thing that is, is medically safer than the opioids of abuse like Percocet and Oxycontin and all those other things? Why do we have that restriction on Suboxone when I mean, we don't have that on anything else? I thought that was very interesting thing to hear but but also there's there's not enough facilities and that and that comes into 
what does Medicaid pay for? What will an insurance company pay for? What is the, the government subsidies for that? And there's all these different things that come into the availability of treatment. And another thing that comes into it is the stigma surrounding treatment. That's another thing we try to get into a little bit is even a, a family member will think, why can't my son, daughter, niece, nephew, whatever, why can't they just stop? And I think for me, the most interesting thing uh, is just fascinating to me is is how much the brain changes when you become addicted to, to to basically any substance, but to opioids specifically, how difficult that is. And it and you alluded to it that it's not just this thing of I should have the willpower to stop. You know, it goes beyond that. It's akin to the physical need of of thirst and hunger that that it becomes that level of of need because of the brain changes that happen. I found that just absolutely enlightening of why people continue to, to do these things and they continue to have these behaviors that we see as negative. They have criminal behavior. They, they neglect the people in their lives. They, they neglect themselves in pursuit of this, this drug. You know, I think a lot of that can be directly related to if you were starving, you would do everything that you could to get food, and, and, it, and it really does equate to that according to what the science tells us about fiction. I, I just, I found that absolutely enlightening. I think that, you know, kind of comes out from the, you know, from the, a lot of people that we talk to, that that's why medication-assisted treatment is really so helpful, because those cravings are almost like, in, you know, in some cases feel insurmountable, so that's why people don't stick with the abstinence only, because it just, it's still taking over their brain, and if you can get some of the relief from that, from the medication-assisted treatment in the right way, that's, just seems like that's going to make that person so much more set up for success. Their likelihood of long-term success is you know, more likely. And I think that the thing that I was also struck by with medication-assisted treatment and why I think it's such an important option is that not everybody has the ability to go off to an abstinence-based treatment for three, six months, nine months. The longer, the better. It's usually people that have jobs that they're somehow maintaining or families that they can't leave. You know, you can get stabilized on a medication-assisted treatment and go to some counseling at night or go to some, you know, a couple of counseling sessions or group counseling sessions, but still maintain your everyday life. That that's such an important option that needs to be there because I think that that's what keeps, you know, some people from seeking treatment at all. I think that's, you know, somebody recommended like a combination too. Maybe you can get started with some abstinence only, you know, 30 days away. But then when you're, when you leave, you're given some help. And I guess that's the other thing that I was struck by is that we've heard this. It's one of the characters that's you know, the people that we interviewed said at the end, if you go to treatment for 30 days and then you're just like back to your regular environment, what's going to be different? And um, I think the other thing that we need to keep in the conversation is this idea of long-term, is a long-term chronic disease and that it needs consistent follow-up and, and that you need to think of it like that and not think, okay, I'm all better now, I'm gonna go back and because that seems like that's kind of the recipe for, for relapse. And that's not to take anything away from 12-step programs, abstinence-based programs, faith-based programs that have obviously helped thousands and thousands of people over the over the past 50 years I mean it it is a thing that absolutely helps people and we and, and that's why we try to be very even-handed mm-hmm. uh, in the documentary is to is to not take anything away from from an abstinence-based program especially when when some of those are the ones that are available for a person to go to for treatment so mm-hmm. that I think that's something that's very important in this whole discussion is to not denigrate or take anything away from anybody right. that's doing the good work that 
is required for the epidemic that we're in. I mean, it's all hands on deck. It's it's all options on the table. That's something that more and more people in all levels are saying is that we have to have everything available. We have to have every place available. We need to get as many people into into some form of treatment as 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 is possible. And like you were saying, there there may be one that that may a person may identify with in the documentary that they may say, I should, I think I'd do really well in a faith-based program, Mm -hmm. or I think I may do really well at a really highly structured methadone type program. That's something that, that more and more people are coming around to is that everything, because so many people are dying and we've had 50 overdoses in, in Louisville in, in 36 hours and, and just down the street from where I live, in Nicholasville, they had, I can't remember the numbers, but it, it was an amazing amount in a short period of time. And that's that happens all over the state. Yeah, I recently lost a friend in Louisville mm-hmm. to the ODs mm-hmm. that were happening mm-hmm. there and didn't know that it was an issue for mm-hmm. this person. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is a silent suffering that, that happens a lot of the time as people are ashamed and there's lots of shame involved and embarrassed to, to admit to anyone that, that they that they have a problem. Some people don't even realize that they have a problem because they have a steady supply of what they need from, from either a doctor or from an illicit source. So they never go through the withdrawals of not having them. Uh, which is when you realize you really have a problem and that and that's a that's an in, an intense period of time people have to go through. And I'm certainly sorry to to hear that story about your about your friend and and that's one of the reasons I wanted to be involved in this project. I grew up in Berea and I saw this kind of thing a lot when I was growing up and lost a high school friend as well. So it's it hits all of us, I think. It, it's and if I, I said this uh, a couple of weeks ago to in another interview that if you haven't been touched by it, you're you're in the in the small minority and you're lucky because it's it's happening everywhere all the time here. I was coming of age in the late 80s and, and through the 90s, and I can remember watching it pick up, right? watching things shift, and looking at opioid use and hearing about how it changes the brain. The approaches for someone who is addicted to opioids might need to be different than, for example, someone who's addicted to methamphetamine or alcohol, simply because it works in the brain different ways. I think that's another thing that a lot of people don't realize. Treatment will sometimes need to look different depending on what substance it is being abused. Right. I mean, I've lost a number of friends and I've also watched a number of friends re- go through recovery. Mm-hmm. And one very close friend at one point, he said that his need got so much that if he could just get enough to feel normal, mm-hmm. that was a good day. So he said he wasn't even getting high anymore. He right. wasn't feeling any euphoria. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Okay, I've got to get enough in that I'm not throwing up, that I can get out of bed, that Just I can go out and <laughs> cut someone's grass, get money, go buy more so that I'm not sick in the evening. And it was just that process over and over and over and over again. 
so many people that I've talked to, the ones that are successful either had a very strong family support base or they were able to leave the community where they were addicted in. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that makes me wonder, I know a lot of people here, if they go seek treatment, it's not anywhere local. Um, it's not anywhere close by. To me, that really seems to relegate the possible success of a treatment to someone's class, mm -hmm. someone's economic mm -hmm. class. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if, if you saw that as you were making the film. Were the people who were successful, did they tend to be of one class or the other? Or what What did their mm. support system look like? Because I've talked to so many people who maybe they went to jail. Mm -hmm. And I know you've got the segment on incarceration. Mm -hmm. And they come out and they don't want to go back, you right. know, because they've done the work in jail. They've mm -hmm. been sick. You know, they don't want to go back, but they also don't have an address. They mm -hmm. don't have a job. Right. Mm -hmm. Burn bridges with family. Then what? They're yeah. just like, mm -hmm. there you go. One of the most important things that we continually heard is what happens on the day after you get out of, out of a treatment facility. So if you actually go somewhere, what happens after, after you get out? That is the most critical time for anyone with an opioid use disorder because of the risk of overdose. There's lots of biology that happens when you get off of those and you're clean for a while that makes you even more sensitive to overdosing. And there's so many, a bunch of medical reasons that I'm not qualified to explain, mm. but... But that is that is definitely um, something that's very important. Um, one thing we also heard over and over again is you basically have to get rid of all of your buddies that you were hanging around and, and using with. You have to completely reevaluate how you interact with your family, if that involves some sort of use there as well. It's really a, a complete change of all of your habits because it's all of those habits that kept you there users generally use together and that's, that's something that, that you have to change you have to carve out those people out of your lives to the extent for your own well-being we continually heard that no matter what treatment program they were they were involved in and you're right they need those social supports they need housing they need to be able to get a job they need all of those things when in reality it'd be a lot easier just to go back and sell pills and and to continue to do that because that's what you know that's an easy way to make money all over the world it doesn't matter where you are selling drugs makes money it's a difficult thing to change an entire lifestyle that you may be involved in for the majority of your life and that's got to change one of the people in the film it was we didn't include this phrase in there but he used this phrase accumulating disadvantages and so you know when you get out and you have say you have a criminal record and so you you know you can't get a job or have the money for housing or and you've got these other bills and it just it all piles up and you're trying to get your kids back and and that costs a lot of money we did another segment on a program focused on helping families get their kids back and just the amount of court fees you have and all that kind of stuff i mean it's just it, it it's just sometimes overwhelming so i think that 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 is a huge piece of it i think to echo what justin was saying the thing that I noticed was this aspect of community, how important community is. And that's what AA and NA and the 12-step programs are really, that's what's so great about them too long-term is that there's meetings available and they're free and there's a sense of community that you're part of something bigger. You can connect with that. And uh, there was a, a program we featured called Young People in Recovery, which has chapters, I think, statewide. But they do things like 
just try to remind people that yes, you can have fun. You know, you can have a normal life. We they do something where they take college kids on spring break to Florida and they call it clean break. So it's like instead of going and partying with uh, you know all your friends in Florida, you know, you're with these other people that are going through the same thing and they set up frisbee games and whatever where they're just trying to remind people that you can have community and you can have fun. I don't know what that's like here like in in eastern Kentucky are there enough 12 step meetings available to people. I know they have other kinds of things, but I'm just curious, you know. I did a long interview with a couple and they moved here to relocate. They had some family here. The first thing that John said that he did was to go to the probation office because he thought, well, they'll know and I want to introduce myself. I want mm-hmm. to tell them I'll be around town. He took that up on himself and did mm. that. And he was very surprised at the lack mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. opportunity that he would have to stay consistent in his meetings. Mm-hmm. But I do know that it seems to be picking up. It's not talked about in the community much because mm-hmm. I think, as you've mentioned before, there's a stigma to going to these meetings. Mm-hmm. And I know there is one in town that happens I've heard there's one in Neon, which is a town just down the road. Otherwise, I don't know of any others. Mm. But that was one thing he pointed out directly, was that even going to a place like a probation office, Mm -hmm. he wasn't able, he felt, to find all the resources he needed Mm -hmm. to stay successful. But Mm -hmm. he has, because he has a tremendous drive, which that story is an amazing story. But he speaks publicly as well and helps others. That's one of his big things is to connect others to the resources that he's found. And he's doing a great job at it. And that's one thing that we, again, saw over and over again is the people that were had gotten through a treatment program of some sort at some point in their life and gotten into the recovery life always are giving back. I mean, they, they spend the rest of their lives dedicated to helping other people and that that's it's so amazing to to see the work that they continue to do i'm wondering in that vein do you feel like the more we have conversations like this just open honest this is what it is Mm. this is what you can do it happens a lot Mm. do you think that that will cut down on the stigma i hope so i mean i i just think that that's one of the things that young people in recovery do tara mosley who runs that operation for the state she just talks about, we just need to hear the stories of, of recovery, too. We need to hear the positive stories and, and to know that this is possible and keep lifting that up. And along the way, by doing that, you're normalizing it. It's not something that, that needs to be over here in the shadows. I think having conversations and also this idea of thinking of it as a chronic disease, I think will also make a big difference, too. Think about medication-assisted treatment, for instance. There's some people, and there's some doctors that will say, there's some people that will never get off of it. And it's always a big thing when you hear about medication-assisted treatment. Well, how long are they going to have to be on it? And when you think about it, does it really matter? I mean, if you put it, if, if, if it's between a, a, a somebody and their doctor and you put it back in that context, that it's like it's a decision, a treatment decision between a doctor and their patient and they can figure it out. And I think if it's for their lifetime and it keeps them stable, it shouldn't matter to us. That was my one sort of personal takeaway from it is that, you know, when you consider it like a chronic disease, it does kind of also help remove the stigma too, I think. I will have to be on medication myself for the rest of my life to treat thyroid disease. You know, sometimes things progress to the point where you are maintaining stability rather than actually reversing anything. So I do think 
thinking of it as a chronic issue Mm -hmm. is really important. No different than my sister quitting smoking during her pregnancy, but her grandmother died and she was stressed and went outside and someone handed her a cigarette Mm -hmm. and she started immediately again. It was years in between. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just poof and go away. Mm -hmm. There's always that connection Mm -hmm. there to whatever it was that at some point helped you feel better. And I think that's a real thing to talk about too, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, is that aspect. One of the places we went to, I believe it was Centerpoint Paducah, Max says that we have to find other things to look to in times of crisis because we all have times of crisis. And I, I think that that's for opioid use specifically and, and all drugs of abuse really is that those are a lot of times things we turn to when we're stressed or an event happens and, and that kind of pressure come, comes down. It's easy to turn to, to these drugs because they work. They mm-hmm. absolutely make you feel better about life. It may not have any positive effect on your or your actual life, but it does make you feel better for the time being. They're miraculous in that way. But that's also their downfall, is that they do make you feel good, and then therefore, over time, become addictive, and, and you rely on those things. And changing that view of you have to rely on other things besides that is, is a big thing that has to, has to be changed. And that's something we didn't really get into in the documentary because we didn't really have time, but it's certainly there. Like how many times the addiction is coupled with a mental health issue or trauma until you kind of get at the root of that and, you know, can kind of deal with that. There's always going to be a struggle. And we heard people talk about that and they'd say, you know, I got to the point where at least I could, I got far enough in my recovery, at least I could, then I was stable enough where I could even handle the feelings. Because sometimes, you Mm -hmm. know, those feelings, I mean, people have gone through terrible things and, you you know, it is understandable to want to to drown them out somehow. And, and so I guess getting better resources for people to treat those other issues as well before, you know, early on, you know, that's, so that's a kind of a different issue, I guess, but it's all connected. Yeah. It definitely is connected. Yeah. And that's another area mm-hmm. that I'm really passionate about because we lack mental health resources here mm-hmm. in a huge way. Mm-hmm. And the ones that are here are so backed up and booked that they can't give you the treatment that they would ideally like to give you because they have mm-hmm. so many patients. Right. Your film was part and funded by the Foundation for Healthy Kentucky and they released some statistics and it was like 63% of Eastern Kentuckians felt that their children would have it worse off than they would have it. I know. That's terrifying. uh, And that's so depressing. I mean, if you, you know, think about that, it's, it gets overwhelming to think about that. It gets overwhelming. And Mm -hmm. in the economic shape that we're in right now Mm -hmm. and wondering if a recovery from that is possible Mm -hmm. and what that's going to look like. We're in such Mm -hmm. a period of unknown Mm -hmm. uh, and lack of, resources to help us cope with that. To me, it's it's no wonder that things like opioids mm-hmm. are being turned to because mm-hmm. we get a headache. What do we do? We grab some Tylenol, mm-hmm. you know, and it may not even be a bad headache, mm-hmm. you know, oh, my head's hurting. I'm stressed. I need some coffee and Tylenol. Mm-hmm. We don't think twice about it. You know, what is this? Okay, I could take this and feel better for this time. I'm going to do it today. You know, today turns into tomorrow. Mm-hmm. 
I'm Kelly Haywood, and you are listening to Mountain Talk Monday on WMMT. Real stories, real news, real people radio, brought to you straight from the heart of central Appalachia. Thanks for listening. Addiction treatment specialists in the Ohio Valley are closely watching Washington's health care debate. The Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, helped expand treatment for substance abuse in Kentucky, Ohio, and West Virginia, states with some of the nation's highest addiction rates. As part of an occasional series, the Ohio Valley Resource explores the potential effects of ending the ACA, Aaron Payne reports on what can happen when addiction treatment is lost. Tomas Green is transporting a group of people in treatment for addiction at the Jefferson Day Report Center located in Ransom, West Virginia. They need a ride, need my own personal transportation sometimes, but today we have the Day Report van. Green can relate to his passengers. He's in recovery himself. And now he wants to help others as best he can. For me, I share with everybody, it's always good to have a good support system. Pending changes to the Affordable Care Act could have major consequences for the availability of treatment for those in a region that is basically ground zero for the nation's addiction crisis. It's Rhonda 1 and Rhonda 2. Jefferson Day Report Center Executive Director Rhonda Eddy says a lot of what they do is funded through measures tied to the ACA, and a repeal without replacement would be damaging. It would impact us negatively to the point where we'd have to make some tough decisions about the level of care that we could provide, even to the point where we may not be able to exist. Day Report Center's work with nonviolent drug offenders referred to them by the court system. They offer resources aimed at rehabilitation. Medicaid expansion under the ACA helps the Jefferson Day Report Center gain momentum. It certainly has expanded access to care, more behavioral health care, all of those things that support recovery. Treatment centers across the Ohio Valley have used the additional resources in hopes of reducing the highest opioid addiction and overdose rates in the country. Data from a Harvard-NYU study show in Kentucky, Ohio, and West Virginia, nearly 215,000 additional people were able to seek mental health and addiction treatment after the Medicaid expansion. And that may be a low estimate. GOP congressional leaders are working to repeal the ACA, but have yet to agree on an approach. This is especially true for the ACA's Medicaid expansion, Reform, reduction, and elimination have all been proposed. In Portsmouth, Ohio, Lisa Roberts works with people struggling with addiction as a public health nurse for the city's health department. Scioto County, where Portsmouth is located, has one of the highest rates of opioid addiction in the state. According to her, their program and others would be gone with the full repeal of the ACA. There would be a lot of people that would lose access to their addiction treatment. It could just be catastrophic. Roberts has seen firsthand what happens when treatment is suddenly lost. Federal and state authorities shut down an opiate treatment practice operating in Scioto and Lawrence counties during an investigation in 2014. The Portsmouth Health Department had to quickly find clinics that would accept Medicaid for roughly 1,000 people who suddenly lost treatment. Local facilities were overwhelmed, and some people had to travel up to 100 miles for treatment. Long trips proved to be difficult. Some relapsed. Others didn't make it. We did experience spike in overdoses, and we also experienced a lot of fatal overdoses. It was actually the most lethal month that we've seen in Scioto County. Robert says the lesson for the ACA debate remains the same even if the circumstances are different. She and others fear repealing the ACA without a replacement 
could trigger a wave of similar events across the Ohio Valley. And there's a client there. As Congress continues its health care debate, the people Tomas Green drives to the treatment center wait to see what will happen to their coverage. Okay. Green says the road to recovery is a difficult one, but it comes with rewards. First comes the lessons and then the blessings. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Aaron Payne. The Ohio Valley Resource is made possible with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and WMMT. I'm here with Laura Kruger and Justin Allen from KET, and they are the filmmakers. Justin is the director and producer, and Laura was co-producer for the film Journey to Recovery, talking about recovering from opioid addiction and the crisis that we're facing and also the successes that we're having with it. And I think that is something to really point out about this film is that there are some good stories. This film will leave you feeling like, okay, there will be some successes. Not everyone. Yeah, I don't think you shy away from that fact, especially in the end when you're talking about the folks who have been incarcerated and their success rate being lower. But even at that, highlighting the stories of families being reunited, people coming back together, people finding gainful employment, are smart, intelligent, you know, mm -hmm. commonsensical people that found themselves in a bad situation. I want families to see this film so that they can understand what is happening with their loved ones, mm -hmm. have their options laid out, mm -hmm. and help to encourage their loved ones toward an option and not let the bridges be burned. Family that we featured, you know, the, the Ellswicks, they're remarkable. I mean, they went on to start a nonprofit, so, you know, probably had some more advantages. I think they would be open about saying that than other people, but they did have a vision for this about how families need support. And I think one of the things that the Shelly Ellswick, the mom says is that she said, when I realized that this wasn't something that he did to me, we all went through this together. This happened to all of us, and we all had to play our part in figuring out how to get out of it, that everyone played a role, and they did a lot of education and counseling, and that really helped them. And then that enabled them to give grace to their son and not see him as somebody who was there to mess up their lives. And I think that you know helped all of them progress faster. So that, for me, was really touching, seeing mm -hmm. that, you know, hearing their story and having her express it like that. And I, I do think that family seeing it and realizing that it's something that they can all kind of get together on the same page and treat the, the addiction as the enemy and not the right. person, you right. know, is that that's something that they're going to have to figure out how do we outsmart this. At one point, we were thinking of the titles for this film, and we had the idea of, like, outsmarting opioids. Of course, it didn't last, but that was, you know, in all of our processes. But I think the idea that, that appealed to me, because it was sort of like, yeah, it's like so insidious. It, it changes your brain chemistry. It makes you to somebody that you don't even mm -hmm. recognize. So you have to kind of outsmart it. You have to think about, well, how can we not let this take over our lives? And then when everyone gets on the same page, it seems to really be more effective, I guess. And I think that the thing that makes it so difficult to deal with is that we can see brain scans and we can prove with science that it, that it makes all these changes and it, and it really changes who you are. 
but it, it's the behaviors that are associated with being addicted to something that, that make it really hard for people, families to, to deal with the issue because this person's stealing from me, this person's mm-hmm. neglected my children, this person, you know, did all these horrible, horrible things. And it's hard to tell somebody not to use the tough love approach or, or whatever. And of course we would never tell anybody how to, how to do that, but it's one of the things that makes it really, really difficult to deal with as an issue be- mm-hmm. because of the behaviors that are associated with being addicted. If having a better understanding of addiction as a disease is great, but it can but only go so far. It can yeah. only go so far. People are going right. to be like, you know, my, you know, when someone has diabetes, we and we actually heard from a viewer who's like, don't. Why are you comparing it to diabetes? I've had diabetes since I was, you know, a, a child. It's not the same thing. I mean, it's it, there are differences, and I think that that is something that it's important to keep in mind in terms of that, like you were saying, the behaviors and that a lot of, especially younger people, you know they were involved since they were so young, they, they don't need rehabilitation. They need habilitation. They, they need to learn how to do some basic things that they never had the chance to learn. And that, you know, we need to be patient with them about that, but they need to understand that same token, if you're stealing from somebody or you're hurting them, they're, they're going to have feelings too. And it's not going to be like, they're just going to get over it. So. And, and there's consequences for those things. Yeah. yeah. We don't feel, I mean, I, I don't definitely want to give the impression that we're any kind of expert. You know I mean? I think I just think that the process has definitely... I've learned it a lot, you know, um, just in terms of just how complex it is. But I, I definitely came away feeling hopeful too, you know, for the same reason. I think if it could just people can talk about it more, and it just becomes more just commonplace to have conversations like this. I think it will definitely make it make a difference. And you know, one of the when we were talking about doing this project at the very very beginning, we watched a, a lot of other programs and to see what was out there and what had been done already. And and the thing that had been done the most is look how bad this problem is, look at how many people it's killing and look what it does to your body and, and all the consequences for doing that. And that's kind of where they left it. And I think we really wanted to do something that went further than that. We know it's a bad problem. I mean, nobody in this state doesn't know about how bad this can be. So what do we do now? And that, that's really where we where we got started is, is what do we do now? And then the best thing we could, we could think to do is, was explore all these different treatments that have had successes. So I'm wondering if you felt at all limited by focusing on just recovery, if you felt limited in how you could present things. Because I know with so much coming out in the news recently, like the statistic in West Virginia that if every man, woman, and child had a prescription for an opioid, they still couldn't have consumed all the opioids mm. that were sent to this one town. Right. And issues like that. I've come across some statistics lately of the increasing need for behavioral health and special ed programs in schools local hospitals having to fly babies out and separating moms and Mm. babies and things like that that are definitely also things that we need to address Mm -hmm. yeah so what were your limitations i think because we also have uh, inside opioid addiction as an initiative for the past uh, year uh, we've covered lots of different topics in other other formats and in um, talk programs and and that kind of thing. We've tried to explore other uh, other issues related to the opioid epidemic, and but I think as far as the documentary is concerned, it was almost liberating that we didn't have to to address those other issues and we could purely focus on what treatment and recovery look like in the state. Those problems don't go away. Those other issues don't go away, of course, but it gave us some some focus parameters she mm-hmm. said something would come up like needle exchange like that's so super important but not part of what we're doing and we, we hope to address that 
there are definitely a lot of issues that we are still, you know, we were on the driving down here, we were just talking about things that, you know, we would want to address in the future. I think neonatal abstinence syndrome. Prevention. Preven prevention. Prevention. Prevention is probably the biggest yeah. thing that we need to see more on. We don't know what all the programs are. We don't know if they're successful or not, or it's working and, and what isn't. It's just hard to hard to find that information. And it's... And it's it may be out there, but those people are, the, the messaging is not getting out there because I feel like we were traveling the state talking to people all over. And I can't say I could think of one particular program that I went to. You've got to, you know, there's a group of uh, people in, in Paducah doing some police captain, a, a recovering person recovering from uh, opioid use disorder and um, a doctor going out and doing some lectures. But that's like one isolated thing. But I, I couldn't tell you what the best prevention model is. First step is identifying those things. Right. So I feel like there's a lot of work to do in the state on, on prevention, for yeah. sure. And just to add to that, uh, Operation Unite puts on Camp Unite yeah. in Eastern Kentucky, and and we were right, there right. for a few days. And it's amazing to see how happy those kids are when you know that they may not come from the happiest of backgrounds, and, and, they, and they allude to that in the program as well. But it, it's a thing that... Is that something that's that you could replicate in the rest of the state across the country? Is, are there other programs that we don't know about that are doing really good work that that we need to see more of and we need to get people more access to? So there's so many issues, not just prevention and NAS, but so many other things that that we just couldn't tackle in an hour, but we're continuing the the work. I mean, Operation United is doing so many great things. So oh, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not. I guess what I was saying is like a model that's kind of like this mm -hmm. is the statewide model, right. and I think they're they're talking about doing you know developing a curriculum. They are, yeah. yeah. So mm -hmm. there's there's stuff on the horizons. The tangible of that is hard to lay your hands on. You know, you may get a message to a, a, a seven year old that they latch onto and it follows them for life, and they and they don't use and and they're very very productive. A kid next to him got the same message and it didn't work. It's like, how do we know what what's going to work, what, what's going to get through? What's the research saying? Mm -hmm. That's where you do want to look at the evidence-based programs rather than the things that necessarily, you know. Um, but and, and prevention is sort of two-pronged, too, because you've got the, you know, outreach to young people to, you know, to not use. But then it's also the prevention on the level of how many prescription pain pills are we, you know, and how are we treating pain and what is our perceptions of pain. And we did do a show on that called Pain Management Without Addiction, but kind of looked at prescribing guidelines and but also there's a lot of people in chronic pain in Kentucky for a lot of different reasons and those people need help I mean they you know I we had we interviewed a woman who had uh, rheumatoid arthritis her whole life and she said I need my opioids you know I really do so don't you know and I'm not I don't think I'm addicted I mean you may be physically dependent because you would be but she she cannot function without them so those are you know how do we handle those issues and not in a black and white way you know it's either or but kind of how can we be sensitive to all of this and that's that's difficult too I think that those are issues that I think need to be addressed as well and that's like another avenue of prevention you know kind of just healing seeing how we deal with pain mm -hmm. right a huge part of prevention would be a cultural shift in the way that we look at medicine and when mm -hmm. we need mm -hmm. medicine sure mm -hmm. because like you said opioids were created for a very very good reason right mm -hmm. right um and there are times when any one of us could need them right it's Absolutely. not saying do away with them right because they are a necessary thing sometimes, just right. like any medication has side effects. Sure. Mm -hmm. Even the over-counter, over-the-counter mm -hmm. medications right. have side effects. I do want to point out, since you brought it up, the work that you have been doing, which is Inside Opioid Addiction, and it's an initiative of multiple platforms and documentary 
roundtable discussions, talk shows, mm -hmm. all kinds of different media there, and covers a pretty wide range of topics at this point. You can find that at www.kt.org backslash opioids. That's O-P-I-O-I-D-S. And I will put that website on WMMT's website when I post this show so that you can go directly there. Before we end our program, what about making this film changed you and changed your mind? about the topic i think for me growing up seeing this problem for for a long period of time i'm struck by people's level of compassion that is growing i see that changing when i was younger i really saw people really have a net a really negative outlook on anyone who who has this disorder do see that changing that to me is very helpful i mean I, to to get away from the the idea that this is a moral problem and moving toward more towards the disease model, I think it really changes the way we talk about it. Even saying that person's an addict versus that person has a substance use disorder, that type of language change, I think, is is uh, interesting. Where it may seem like a like a small thing, but but it is stigmatizing in, in a way to use that other language. So I, I think for me, um, compassion was the the, the big lesson to me and to and to see it uh, to see people really having a, a change over time and how they how they view the problem I think I think that was the biggest thing for me I really like that you brought that up because I think at this point folks of Gen X generation and younger most of us have watched people evolve from social use of a drug or one-time use of a drug into a full-blown addiction and I think most of us have seen that at this point more than once and we know the background of the person we know that it's not just a moral right. issue that mm -hmm. we can't explain it away that way mm -hmm. that it happens to good people smart people wealthy people poor people mm -hmm. right is subject I, I feel like as, as hopeful as I feel like our documentary is in terms of the, it's so important to get those stories out, I guess I'm still struck by how big of a problem it is and that, you know, just when we're, you know, releasing the documentary, 54 people are overdosing in, right. in Louisville and that, that we're still, there's still so much work to do and that, um, uh, and that we have to just be smart and, and keep at it and try to, and one of the things that was hopeful, really hopeful to me, Will, was when we had our forum after, after we had the documentary, we aired a forum that would have people from the government on and nonprofits and people in recovery. And there was a lot of consensus and a lot of bipartisan support too. And especially at a time when we're so divided, I think there is a lot of unity around wanting to, 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 you know, find some lasting solutions to this problem. And that, that does give me hope. So. Yeah, that's one of the things. We recently had a hepatitis C forum in Hazard, Kentucky, and I went and attended that and came across Van Ingram, our mm -hmm. um, Kentucky Drug Control Policy Director. To hear him speak was a really powerful moment to me because here you're talking to someone 24 years in law enforcement talking about not incarcerating people right. <laughs> and right. putting them. I mean, a, I just bred yeah. a, a, a big relief. Mm -hmm. And he talked about his evolution of thought mm -hmm. toward that, mm -hmm. you know, rehabilitation rather than incarceration. Right. right. 
And um, that was a really big moment. And I, I do think things are changing, and I think we can get on top of this issue mm-hmm. um, if we keep talking about it mm-hmm. and, and putting those words into action. Mm-hmm. So um, the film, Journey to Recovery, is available to view on KET's website, as well as all the other media that we were talking about that is the Inside Opioid Addiction Initiative, correct? Yes. yes. And, you know, I should just say, we are love to make copies available if anyone wanted to have a screening of you know in their church or anything like that where maybe showing it online is not the most you know efficient way to do it you if you don't have a great connection or whatever we can get dvds in the hands of people that might want to have a screening for a small group so um they could just email us l kruger at org, and send us your address and we'll you know and we're just really interested in having more people see it and use it if we think if it can be helpful that's what you want absolutely i'll tell you right now that that would be a huge blessing to us here because our internet speeds are so slow that sometimes streaming is just impossible we can't do it that is yeah. a great alternative. It, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, we'll make sure. Yeah. We were really happy to do that. So, Well, thank you for offering mm-hmm. that. Well, I appreciate you both being here today. Thanks okay, to thank you, you for having you us so come much. down. It was really <laughs> great to be here with you. And to be in Apple Shop, this is like a thrill for me. And, you know, <laughs> oh, like, yeah. <laughs> great. That's how, I was like that when I went to KC. <laughs> 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 this, this is Cooper Drive. Yeah. <laughs> you know, from the time I was little. Yeah. And my, one of my daughters, she would say, "Explore Kentucky, explore the world." Little voice, I loved it. Anyway. Our marketing department. Uh, yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much. We really do appreciate being yeah, here. Yeah, it's nice yeah. to have a lot of time to talk and just you know just to get it all out. So we really appreciate it. Great, great. Yeah. Thank you. And you've been listening to Mountain Talk Monday. I've been here with Laura Kruger and Justin Allen from KET, and they just released the documentary film Journey to Recovery, which you can find streaming at KET.org. And all the links to the media that we've talked about, as well as addresses, will be on WMMT's website. That's www.wmmt.org. And for all of you out there, we would like to thank you for listening. WMMT is truly your radio station. We have volunteer DJs from your community playing your favorite music. And with WMMT's wide variety of public affairs programming, we're telling your stories. Good evening and welcome to the Breaking Beans Radio Show. Welcome to History Alive on WMMT Mountain Community Radio. Hello and welcome to Radio from the Heart of Appalachia to the Young at Heart right here on your listener-supported WMMT. You're listening to Shoe Buddy Higher Ground Radio. Welcome to this edition of Mountain Talk Monday. This is Mountain News and World Report. Tune into our public affairs programming Monday through Thursday from 6 to 7 p.m. and on Sundays from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. You can find the public affairs schedule online at WMMT.org, where you can also stream the latest shows or look through our archive. You can also find Mountain Talk Monday and Mountain News and World Report as podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. 
dedicated to real stories, real news, and real people radio, this is your WMMT. Uh-huh.